open our Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 7. On Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Acts together. We come now to chapter 7, and we'll pick things up in verse 54. If you're with us today and you don't have a Bible with you, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and you just flag them. They'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage that we're studying today for your convenience. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. God wants everyone to have a Bible and to read their Bible and to know the Bible. It's the single greatest way that He reveals Himself uh, to us. So we pick things up in verse 54. Uh, Stephen has now uh, finished giving his, his defense against the charges that had been brought against him before the Sanhedrin, as we saw in the last week. And here is the description now of their response to that and his death. And when they, that is the Sanhedrin, heard these things, the Jewish religious leaders, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. And that's angry. I mean, there's a physical, rea- a physical reaction to the depth of the anger that they felt toward him. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look. I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And what was precious to him was not precious to them. And then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and they ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen, he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down, and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That is, he died. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for our brother Stephen. Thank you that he is currently in the heaven that we are headed for as Christians. And we thank you for this account of his death that is in your word, and we know that it's there for a reason. There's something from your Father's heart that you want to build into our hearts, our mind, our soul, our strength, our living, our perspectives, and our service to you. And we surrender ourselves to you right now. We want you to know that we consider it an incredible privilege to be able to read your Bible and to know your Bible, to study it, and to have you speak through your Bible into our lives. And we ask now, Lord, that you would take the vital truths that are bound up in these verses and that are as needed in our lives as ever they were for Stephen, that you would build those into our life, our relationship with you, Lord, and this pilgrimage that we're involved in from birth into the glory of heaven. And we ask these things of you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. At the start of chapter 7, Stephen is alive. He's a deacon in the early church. He's of good reputation, the passage tells us, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with wisdom, full of power and faith, doing great signs and wonders among the people, his face shining as a face of an angel. And yet in just a matter of minutes, by the end of chapter 7, he's dead. He's alive, 
one moment, he's alive at the beginning of a chapter, and by the time the chapter is over, he's dead. Life is gone out of his body. So the chapter begins. He has a capacity of life that each of us has in this room right now to merely think something and then be able to do it as a result, to say, I'm going to raise my right arm. I'm going to make a fist of my right hand. I'm going to open that fist. All of that capacity of physical nature to say nothing of dreams and prayers and thoughts and what was in not only his body but his heart and his mind and his soul and all of it alive there at the beginning of the chapter and then when the chapter comes to an end he's dead and his body is broken and contorted and blood covered and lifeless under a pile of stones he's martyred imagine participating in the death of a man like Stephen. Imagine participating in the silencing of a voice like that for God as they had done. Imagine silencing and stopping such a heart for God and man as was found in Stephen. Horrible. And I think to myself, how do you live with it? How do you live with yourself after participating in something like that? And we know the, of one man on that scene who couldn't live with himself as a result and who will ultimately in a chapter or two be knocked off of his high horse as he makes his way from the city of Jerusalem to Damascus to persecute Christians to be found there, Saul of Tarsus, who ultimately would become the Apostle Paul. And Stephen was the first martyr of the Christian church, and it's very well been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. There was an early church father, early church Christian, who, by the name of Tertullian, who uh, communicated that. He was the source of the statement. And he was essentially declaring that persecution, even to the point of death, would never stop the church, has never stopped the church, but only causes it to grow even greater in numbers. And from the book of Acts on in church history right into the current hour, it is hard to deny that most of the expansion of the kingdom of God in the world has occurred because of the willingness of martyrs to lay down their life when necessary in order for that expansion to occur. At the time of his death, Stephen had no idea that his name would become a household name in every Christian home in the world for 2,000 years, or that God would overwhelm all of the horror and the injustice of his death and use it to bring about ultimately the salvation of the Apostle Paul. Stephen knew nothing at the time of the uncountable millions of people who would then be impacted by Paul's life. And Stephen knew nothing of the uh, Christians through almost 2,000 years who would turn to his life and his death, as is recorded here in Scripture, for encouragement and for instruction on how to face death triumphantly on the day and the hour of their martyrdom for Christ. It's important for us to be aware that martyrdom for Christ is not merely an ancient chapter in church history, but it's ongoing and it's widespread to this very day. It's been widely reported recently 
by those who keep track of these things and study these things, that worldwide, the last century, uh, 1901 all the way through the year 2000, that more Christians died for their faith in that 100-year period than in all of the previous 1900, uh, 19th centuries of Christianity previously. A ministry by the name of Open Doors was, uh, has, puts out a report. They have assisted persecuted Christians since 1955, and they recently published their annual report declaring 2015 to be the most violent and sustained attack on Christian faith in modern history. We say, how can that be? I, I, how can it happen? And there's nothing in the news about it. How, is, how does this go under our radar? And we just think about even in recent history, we read about a civil war in the Sudan, and then the country is broken in half, and southern Sudan becomes its own country for the sake of the Christians. One and a half million Sudanese died in a civil war that was meted against them by militant Islam from the north. And the vast majority of that 1.5 million, just in one country, in one civil war, most of them were Christians. And persecution, in the words of the article, continues to increase, intensify, and spread across the globe. They gave examples of North Korea, where this morning, where we, as we sit here this morning in this room, an estimated 50 to 70,000 Christians are in labor camps. They're just like me. They have dreams for their own life. They have dreams for their children, their grandchildren. They have dreams for life. They have all of the desires that we have, and yet here they are locked up in labor camps in a special threat to North Korea because uh, of the hatred there in this communist country for Christians, at least among the leadership, uh, because the Christians are a constant reminder of accountability to a higher power than the state. In 2015, nine out of the ten countries where Christians ex- suffer extreme persecution, the populations there are at least 50% Muslim. And that phenomenon has uh, been replicated, the article says, in the year 2016. In 2015, report found that Islamic extremism is by far the most significant persecution engine of Christians in the world today, and that 40 of the 50 countries on the world watch list are affected by this kind of persecution. In Iraq, Christians were forced to flee their homes by the thousands or be killed. In other countries, making the top ten in Christian uh, persecution are uh, Arita, uh, Tria, Afghanistan, Syria, Pakistan, Somalia, Sudan, Iran, and Libya, all of which have Muslim majorities. And the report then underscores the geographical extent of Christian persecution. And a gentleman by the name of Mr. Curry, who's the CEO of Open Doors, he highlighted the fact that the global, highlighted the global nature of the problem, noting that it has become more acute, not just in a few isolated regions in the world, but in every continent, in every country. 
And I quote again the article, the levels of exclusion, discrimination, and violence against Christians is unprecedented, spreading, and intensifying, Curry added. Christians longing to stay in their home countries are being forced to flee for their lives and for their children's lives. And that's the state of Christianity, not merely 2,000 years ago, but the overwhelming state of Christianity in the world today. But this account of Stephen's death is more than just a record of his death. If we walk away from the passage and we say, well, we learned something, some handful of specifics related to the death of the first martyr in the Christian church, then we will have hardly scratched the surface of what I think the passage is intended to teach us. The great question that begs to be answered in the death of Stephen is, why did he do it? Why did he do it? And further, what in life is worth dying for? We know that he did it. We know that he died. We know that he died willingly. But the question is, why? And here in Stephen, we have one man's answer to that question. What is worth dying for in the life of a child of God? And Stephen would answer from the pages of Scripture, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. How that in the words of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and He was buried, and that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. He died for carrying that gospel. And to be able to carry that good news, that gospel of God's gift to mankind is worth dying for, Stephen would say, to speak to our fellow human beings of the forgiveness of sins, of the possibility of becoming a completely different human being than the one that we are when we wake up one morning and it's the great desperate longing of our heart, the possibility to become a new creation the possibility of a personal relationship with God, to live through all of this life with the unshakable confidence that heaven is our future destination and it is where we land at the end of this life and all of its glory and all of its peace. He said it's worth dying for preaching Jesus and preaching Him as the fulfillment of the law of Moses and for declaring that the temple, as wonderful it was in its own way, was merely a type and a shadow of Jesus. And this was the reason that He was arrested. And further, He went on to declare Jesus as the promised Messiah, Savior of the world. And He, he made, uh, made that the final sentence of His message in His defense. Fence. He declared Jesus to be standing at the right hand of the Father in heaven and that declaration concerning Jesus, that witness concerning Him and His position in heaven was what unleashed their violent rampage against Him. And the final two prayers that He uttered were uttered to Jesus in verse 59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and in verse 60, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And why did Stephen die? There's testimony to Jesus. The entire passage is filled with Jesus. Jesus, 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 from beginning to end. And from the pages of Scripture, 
Stephen declares that faithfulness to Jesus, his name, his gospel, his great commission, his plan for our lives is worth dying for. And Jesus answered that same question. What is there in life that is worth dying for? What is there that I should deem more important than even my own life? And he answered it for us as his disciples. And one answer is the privilege of knowing him and following him. He said to his disciples both then and today, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, that's a death, and follow me. Jesus declared that his plan and his will for our lives is worth living and dying for. Jesus declared for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. Jesus spoke to the church at Smyrna in one of his seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you're rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. And then here it is. Be faithful Unto death, he told that church, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Be faithful unto death. I'll tell you, that's serious stuff. You think about it. There's something good in me to hear from that from the Lord. It makes me realize that Christianity is something. There's nothing like it in the whole world. It means something to be a Christian. It means something significant to be a Christian. It's a significant commitment that we're called to, and it's a privilege to be able to commit to do so. That Christianity, and I have to be reminded of it in Western culture and the culture of the United States of America, even the church culture, that Christianity is not about sermons for the sake of sermons or playing church, but that people have died in our calling as Christians, and they are dying today, and we need to be willing to do so as well. And it does something good in me to hear that, and it does something good in me to be challenged in that way and to commit in such a way to the Lord. And why is it important to answer the question, the question, what in life is worth dying for. Because only what is worth dying for in life is also worth living for. Only what is worth dying for in life is then also worth living for. Which then brings us to our next point, that every single Christian is called to be a martyr, whether that martyrdom is expressed in death or in life. The Greek word that is used, translated martyr, in our English New Testaments, and the word 
that the Apostle Paul uses in describing the death of Stephen, this very scene that we're studying here, Paul describes it later in Acts chapter 22, and the word martyr that he uses there to describe Stephen, it literally means witness. And in our culture, we tend to think of a martyr as solely someone who has laid their life down for something, but the word really means witness. And thus, in a technical sense, death does not make a person a martyr, it merely reveals them to be one. And it's important to realize that. It's important to realize that there are dead martyrs, but important to realize that just as true, there is such a thing as living martyrs. The fact of the matter is that a very small percentage of Christians will ever die a violent death for our faith. And unless something changes dramatically in the United States of America, the likelihood of any of us dying a martyr's death or a violent death for our faith is fairly remote. But each of us is called to be a martyr nonetheless, to be a witness to Jesus Christ in our words and in our deeds, whatever the threat might be brought against us, even under the threat of death. If, like Stephen, we're called on by some authority, whether it's religious or secular, to deny Christ, we are never to do it. We are never to do it. It is worth dying not to do that. We are never to deny Christ, who He is, and what He's done in human history. And Stephen was a martyr long before he died. Death isn't what made him a martyr. It merely revealed him to be one. The Apostle Paul himself would one day die a violent death for his faithfulness to Christ and his faithfulness to the testimony concerning Jesus. But he was a living martyr long before his beheading. He wrote famously of being a living martyr in Galatians chapter 2.20. He said, I am crucified with Christ. Think about that. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. He's describing a living martyr. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He would later write to that same group of churches in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 6, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In Acts chapter 21, as he's making his way to the city of Jerusalem, and great persecution is waiting for him there. As he makes his way by ship and across land, he comes ultimately to the city of Caesarea, not very far from Jerusalem, and he meets with Christians there. And there's a prophet by the name of Agabus who comes to Paul, and he takes the robe, the belt of his robe away, and he binds up his hands, and he binds up his feet, and he declares to the apostle Paul that if he continues on his journey to Jerusalem, that uh, he is going to be bound, and he's going to be persecuted in Jerusalem. And all of the Christians that were there in Caesarea and Philip's house, they began to plead with Paul not to put his life in danger, not to put his safety in danger, not to 
to go to Jerusalem. And Peter and, and Paul answered and said, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to Timothy at the end of his life, and he said, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. And finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And then the Apostle Paul declared all of these things true, not merely concerning his own life, but then he called upon every Christian to do the same. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, And I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself as a living sacrifice unto God, your bodies wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. He wrote to the church at Colossae, And if you then were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, and set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you shall appear with Him in glory. And the same calling and commitment to the same things to the point of death is as required of us as Christians today as ever it was in the early church, even when our faith is challenged by the greatest test of all, and that is death. And this thing called Christianity is a very serious thing. You take Christianity out of human history and you remove light, you remove hope, you remove peace, you remove faith, you remove all of the things that are needed to keep our sanity and to keep us alive in this life. And the introduction of the gospel into human history through the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ was to introduce light into a scene that was completely dominated by darkness. It was to penetrate an impenetrable wall of darkness that dominated from the fall of Satan prior to the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. There's nothing that could break the darkness that marked the world but that gospel. Christianity is serious business. The gospel is a serious thing. It meets a serious need in human history. And it's a powerful, powerful thing that God has done in the gospel. And it took a dying Savior to provide that hope and that salvation. It took the death of our Lord Jesus. And it has taken the death of Christians through thousands of years in order to advance it. And not merely 2,000 years ago, but all over the world today as well. This is not an extraordinary Christianity that we're talking about this morning. It is not to be viewed as an extraordinary Christianity, not in one of our minds as a Christian. This is what Christianity is. And this is what we've been called into. And this is what we are to give our lives for, whether in a moment in time where some knife is held to our neck or someone's going to shoot us dead or whether we spend our lives over a long period of decades being faithful to Christ. But this is what we've been called to be faithful to. Again, most of us in this room 
will not die a violent death for our faith in Christ, but our commitment to Christ and our willingness to do so if necessary should not be any less than those who will. Now, a living martyr is a Christian who, instead of being called to lay down their life in a moment in time for the sake of Christ, is instead called to faithfully lay down their life one day at a time for long years and decades in the place that God has chosen for them to live for His glory and to work for His glory and to serve Him for His glory. Whether it's in a classroom or a hospital or like Joseph and Daniel, whether it is in government or it's in a field or a cubicle or in a church, letting our light so shine before men that when they see our good works, they will glorify our Father who is in heaven. And it is still a death. It is still a death. It is still to invest the one life that I will ever have on this earth into the purpose and the plan that God has for it by which He might receive glory. They are both martyrdoms. They are both to live the life of a martyr. And Paul encapsulated it beautifully in Romans chapter 14, verse 8. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. And therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Now, sometimes when we talk about this kind of thing, it's natural for someone to wonder, and I've been asked this many, many times through the years, where someone would look and say, I want to, if I ever found myself in that moment in time where it was either my life or deny Christ, I'd like to believe that I would stand in that moment that I would be faithful in that moment. But I don't know for sure that I would. I would want to with all of my heart, but I don't know that I would be able to do it. What would I do in that kind of a situation? And I can't be certain about it. And thus I think it's important to notice how active God was at the scene of Stephen's death and to realize that he will be as active at the scene of our death, whether it is by stoning or whether it is by natural causes at the end of a long life lived for him. And take notice some observations that we can apply to our own life. If God calls us to die such a death, he will give us the grace to do so at the moment that we need it. And you notice in verse 55 that at the moment Stephen was dying, at the moment that he was in this place, he is described as being full of the Holy Spirit. And who does that in a Christian's life? Does a Christian fill themselves with the Holy Spirit? No, we ask, but it's God who fills us with the Holy Spirit. Stephen is in this scene, and he is filled with the Holy Spirit because God filled him with the Holy Spirit and gave him all that he would need to be necessary to stand for God in the midst of that scene. None of us could be faithful in that kind of a scene in our own strength. And God doesn't ask us to do that. If God asks us to do something, He will also provide us with the strength that we will need at that moment in time to do it. And I think to myself, why would the Holy Spirit make it a point to tell us 
and everyone in, for 2,000 years of history that are looking at Stephen for how to die for Christ if, it, if a similar martyrdom comes into their life, why would the Holy Spirit tell us that Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit except to let us know that he will never call even one of us to endure something like this without also giving us the fullness of the Holy Spirit and the grace to victoriously stand in that scene, no matter how weak we are. And verses in the Bible abound as a witness and a testimony to it. Deuteronomy chapter 33, as your days, God said to his children, to us, so shall your strength be. Isaiah 41, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, yes, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And then into the New Testament, no temptation has overtaken you except it is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And then in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And sometimes you'll hear and it is a perfect point in a sermon like this for me to then challenge you to make this kind of a commitment to God and to, you know, determine that in your heart you would at that moment in, you know, your own strength stand in that kind of a scene and how many of you want to do it and all of that. And, and I suppose it's okay for others to do it. That challenge put to God's people asking them whether they would confess or deny Jesus in the face of death. And I don't particularly care for that kind of thing. Because if God called us to do it, He will also give us the grace to face it in a way that would glorify Him. In the same way that He did with Stephen. God won't give us the grace that we need on that day today. He gives us the grace that we need today for what we're facing today. And when the day of death comes on that day, He will supply us with the grace we will need to face it, just as He did with Stephen, and later did with Paul, and later did with Peter, and has done so with countless millions since in the course of 2,000 years of church history. I want you to notice, too, in verse 55, the Holy Spirit gave Stephen a gaze into the eternal glory of heaven. And here he is, God made the reality of heaven and eternity more real to Stephen. You think of the intensity of the scene that he finds himself in the middle of. It would be like, it would be, it's so strong, it's so violent in every way, it's almost like you wouldn't be able to redirect your mind, redirect your eyes or your thinking, your emotions away from it. And yet God steps into the scene and gives Stephen something that is greater than all of that. He gives him a glimpse at heaven and the glory of heaven and a glimpse of God himself that was more real, and he made it more real and more powerful to, to Stephen than all of the horror that was going on all around him. And I want you to notice as well in verse 56 that the revelation of Jesus and to the, notice the participation of Jesus in all of this. 
Jesus is pictured now in the midst of this scene as Stephen looks up into heaven and he is given insight and revelation of that glory and he sees Jesus standing. And yet we know from one end of the New Testament to the other that Jesus is seen in heaven sitting at the right hand of the Father. And why is he pictured as always sitting at the right hand of the Father? It is because he has supplied mankind with a finished salvation. He sits because it's complete. It's done. He's finished his work. Mankind now has a way to be saved and to be forgiven. And yet here in this scene, he's no longer sitting. He is standing, and that's the vision that is given to Stephen there. And he is given that vision of Jesus standing, and Jesus is obviously standing in order to welcome the first martyr into the glory of heaven. But it isn't just true of Stephen. It's true of each and every one of his saints, each and every one of his martyrs, whether they are killed in an instant or death comes at the long end of a long life of faithful service to him. There's a famous old uh, spiritual that declares at the moment of death that a band of angels are going to come and take us into the glory of heaven. I looked over Jordan and what did I see? Coming for to carry me home. A band of angels coming after me, coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. And you know, as wonderful as that thought might be to us, of the fact at the moment of our death that God is going to send some group of angels to then usher us into the glory of heaven, the reality of the Scriptures is even better. For Jesus himself will come to us and bring us into the glory of heaven personally. Jesus spoke to the disciples and he said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and so we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. The instant the instant we depart this body, we are present with the Lord. It is an immediate presence. Psalm 116 declares concerning all of this in verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. You think about that. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And we wonder, what in the world is he saying there? And this speaks of the Lord's presence at the death of each of his children, every Christian. It speaks of the, the point and the fact that he is actively present at the death of every child of God and that he will be with us in that same scene if and when that day comes into our lives, barring the rapture. Sometimes at the death of a Christian loved one, and here they are at the end of fighting against a long sickness or they've had some kind of a seizure or a stroke and they've got all of the machines operating and working but it doesn't look good and, or our loved one is in 
hospice care at the hospice house, and they're given drugs to take care of the pain. And by one means or another, perhaps they slip into a coma or some other kind of unconsciousness, or the drugs slip them into a way where they no longer respond to our words, they no longer respond to our encouragement, to our touch, to our prayers, no physical response. And we realize they've gone someplace now that we can't reach them. And so often when a Christian finds himself in that place and they see that with a loved one, their heart breaks because they think, is he alone? Is she alone here at the moment of death? When they need the encouragement the most, my voice is powerless to penetrate this shroud that is now thickening between me and them. Who is going to comfort them? Who is going to pray for them? Who is going to strengthen them? And we can wonder, related, has our loved one been left comfortless? But way down in their spirit, in that place that is deeper and more real than the heart or the mind or the body, God is present with them, and He is ministering to them, actively strengthening and comforting. It is Jesus who said to His saints, to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. The psalmist in Psalm 46 God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Through every moment and instant in life, all the way into the glory of heaven. And God overwhelmed all of the horror and all of the injustice of Stephen's death, and he did it the only way he could. He did it with himself. And in verse 60, Stephen is kneeling down under the weight of the stoning, he goes from standing to kneeling, and he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And then in verse 60, after he had prayed this, he fell asleep. He died. And finally, while in that kneeling position came the stone that ended his life, and he slipped out of that battered body and into heaven's glory, and the Holy Spirit used the term sleep to refer to Stephen's death because it was so peaceful and so beautiful in its own way in complete contrast to the violence of the scene. And Saul, who watched every nanosecond of Stephen's death, would later write as the Apostle Paul concerning the death of a Christian, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, it makes me wonder if the images of Stephen at his death didn't fill his mind as he wrote it. For those of us who are Christians in the room this morning, this is a beautiful, beautiful passage in a very melancholy sense. And Stephen demonstrates for us not only how to live and how to die as a Christian, but also that God and the gospel and the kingdom of God are worth dying for in this life if we're called to it. And all of us are called to it that whether that, that martyrdom occurs in a moment in time or over a long life of many decades, that God will give us the grace for it and He will overwhelm it with His active presence. 
And what a privilege it is to be a martyr in this life. Again, whether expressed in living or in dying, to be a witness to the truth of God concerning the most important message that any other human being can hear and will ever hear, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, how it is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures, to be able to live and die for that gospel, the gospel that has changed our lives and changed our eternities. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and it has been true for 2,000 years, and it remains true yet today. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, you have never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Here's what Jesus would want to say to you this morning. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, Fear him. The most fearful thing in life, Jesus said, is not death. It is the judgment that comes after death. If I come to face God unforgiven of my sins because I have rejected the salvation that he made possible through the death of his son and the gospel that he has advanced through the death of his children for 2,000 years. And the Bible teaches that one day every single human being is going to stand before Jesus. And we are either going to stand before him and he is going to be on that, in that scene, either our Savior or he will be our judge. And Jesus does not want a single human being to face him as their judge but only as their Savior. There are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after this service. And if you've never trusted in Christ and entered into the forgiveness of sins and received the confidence of everlasting life and been made a new creation and all of the things and the blessings that are bound up in that gospel, today's the day of your salvation so that one day when you stand before Him, he will be your Savior and not your judge. You won't want that. But even more importantly, He doesn't want that for you. And He doesn't want you to put Him in that place. The single greatest thing that a human being can do for God the Father, that a, a human being can do for the God who created them, is to put our faith in the Son that He sent into the world to pay the price that we could never pay for the forgiveness of our sins. We will never honor Him more than when we do that concerning His Son. If you're not saved, today is the day of your salvation. These men and women and these pastors would love to pray with you after the service to begin that relationship with God that Jesus died to provide not only to the world, but to you personally. Let's stand together and we'll pray.
Father, thank you for passages like this in your Bible that remind us of the strength of Christianity, the sobriety surrounding the gospel and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And Lord, here we live in the United States of America, still amazing in its affluence, amazing in its distractions, and how prone we are to even make Christianity after the culture and after our own image, something safe, something comfortable, something that knows nothing of sacrifice. And Lord, we can move so far away so quickly from this Christianity, the Christianity that you sent your Son into the world to provide to us, the Christianity that untold millions of Christians have spent their lives and died for in refusing to deny Christ and to deny the gospel so that one day we could hear the gospel in all of its purity and have our lives and our eternities changed. And we pray, Lord, that there would be an afterglow of this passage wherever it might be needed and to whatever degree it might be needed in each of our lives so that we will then be willing to take our place in human history and to take our stand and to become a martyr, Lord, for the only things in life worth dying for and thus worth living for, whether you call us to lay our lives down in a moment or an instant in time by some means of violence as someone is clamoring for us to renounce our faith or whether you choose to cause our martyr's life to be lived out over long decades. But the life, the lone life that we have given just as surely and just as completely over that period of time. Thank you for the privilege of being able to be identified with you and the things of you and to not only live for those things, but if you should desire, Lord, to die for those things. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you stand here this morning and before you leave and there's something that you want someone to 